listening to Nikki Schrera. This is the title track off of her new album, Nowhere Girl, which drops on June 9th. I had the privilege of speaking to Nikki from her home in Toronto, Canada. And we talk a lot about what it was like living in South Africa, living in London, and the musicians and music that influenced her growing up, being in New York City, studying at the Manhattan School of Music. We talk a lot about this album and its, its evolution, its creation. It was 10 years in the making. What it was like to work with a producer, what it's like in the studio with the musicians, songwriting, vocalizing. Uh, It's a really wide-ranging conversation and really super fun. She's very creative, very funny, very insightful, and it was just a joy to get to meet her. And I want to give her a very special thanks for reaching out to want to be on the show. The show had been on pause for a little over a year. I had to pause due to some personal and family issues. And now the show is back, so you can expect more episodes uh, on a more regular basis. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Nikki Shrira. Enjoy. Welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado... Here is this week's episode. Nikki. Hi. Welcome to the Playful Musician. Thanks so much for being here. Steve, thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. I wish there were more jazz interview (laughs) podcasts, but yours is definitely one of my favorites. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, It really uh, warms my heart to hear that. And, um, how are you're in Toronto? Is that right? Yes, I'm in Toronto. Rainy, not very <laughs> spring-like Toronto. Probably, probably looks more like where you are actually in. Oh, in in Oregon. In, in Oregon, yeah. Yeah, actually, we have had a heat wave here. It was ninety, well, thirty Celsius, I guess, uh, yesterday, and it's. Yeah, it's kind of unusual, and then it's going to cool down again. But um, yeah, don't gloat, don't gloat, Steve. <laughs> I'll leave. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I'm a sunshine person. I need like, you know, yeah. light, and I have to escape yeah. the winters. No, but, you um, and you and me both. I'm not really cut out for extreme weather temps, given that I grew up in Cape Town, which is so temperate. But yet, oh, right. find myself. I keep coming back to northern <laughs> North America, if not the U.S., then Canada. R- right. 
So you grew you grew up in South Africa. You were were you born there? No, I was born in London in England. My parents are both South African and they lived mm-hmm. in the UK for about 30 years and during that time they had my siblings and me and then in 91 when Mandela was released from Robben Island my father said we're going home. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said but we are home. I think I was like 5 at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said no no no, we're going home. My dad loves loves South Africa and he moved us all back in 91 when none mm. of his expat friends moved back. They all thought he was mad to be moving back to South Africa post-apartheid. But his heart is really, it's in Cape Town specifically mm. and certainly in South Africa. My mother, who had, who's originally from the Eastern Cape, she's from Port Elizabeth, a small town in the Eastern Cape, she had taken to London like a duck to water. Mm. She loved it. She got an accent. She immersed herself in the city, the architecture, the culture. You know, she sort of had all three of her kids there, so she'd made friends through that experience of motherhood. So she was quite bereft when we moved Mm. back. I still don't think that she's really forgiven my father, but she's she's made the the most Mm. of it. And as a result, my siblings and I grew up in Cape Town and had a mm. wonderful, a really a wonderful childhood, mm. you know, teen years, all of it, all the way through college, through my undergraduate, which is, right. yeah, at that point I, I left. How many siblings do you have? I have two. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And are they I'm the middle musician? squeak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the youngest. Which will four. become apparent. <laughs> Oh, you're the youngest. Oh, you're the baby. I'm the baby. Um, yeah, it'll be I interesting know. to see if throughout <laughs> as this as this conversation progresses, Steve. If I think, oh yeah, no, he really is. Right. He really is the the youngest in in Afrikaans. That there's a term for the the youngest child, which is lat lamaki, which literally means late lamb. So it's the sort of the last lamb to oh, yeah. to join the <laughs> join the fold. Uh, so you and my brother have that in common. No, my my siblings are not musicians, and my parents are not musicians. The mm. The closest thing to me in terms of a relative who is a musician is I had a great aunt who was a child prodigy, a pianist prodigy at about the age of 13, incredibly musical. Um, Mm. Her name was was Eunice Robinson, and she lived most of her life in England. And my dad, like many other fathers, was a self-taught guitar folky dad. And he used to go and, and busk and play at the folk clubs in London. Mm. Um, and he, uh, you asked me if I had any great anecdotes before we started recording, but he has some marvelous anecdotes <laughs> about sitting there and watching Paul Simon play in a club and thinking, you know, who is this guy? You know, before he got famous. And right. his other story, which is very funny, is um, as a, a young, oh, as a, a sort of a young adult, he would spend his summers in Europe because he lived in the UK. His parents moved there with him and he, he had family friends, these, this elderly couple, and they came to him and they said, Jonathan, my dad's called Jonathan, you play the guitar and you're, you're, you know, you're musical. Our, um, nephew, uh, 
is writing, it wants to write musicals and we have this cassette tape and would you listen to it and tell us what you think? So my dad takes this cassette tape and puts it in the player and presses play and he hears some stuff about some guy called Joseph and a, you know, Technicolor dream coat. And he thinks, what is this dreck? And he goes back to the, these family friends and he says, whatever you do, tell your nephew, like he really should keep his day job. And that was Andrew Lloyd Webber. And that was oh Joseph and the Technicolor. So um, anytime now that my dad passes opinion on my music, I look at him and I go, uh-huh. Now mm. tell me, Andrew Lloyd Webber, what became of him? Successful? Great. No? Paul Simon? Ring a bell. So, um, that's yeah. That's really funny. He has some lovely anecdotes. Did you, but, did yeah, you ever, it. did you ever sing with him or is, was his singing like rubbed off on, like, how did the singing start? How with did you? the singing come to be? I, I think what, what my, so my mother, even though she's not a musician, she has a really beautiful voice and she was big on singing to us lullabies when we were younger. Mm. And my dad has a wonderful voice too, actually. It's not, it's a, a very natural voice. It's without affectation. And because that's the kind of singing voice he had, he taught me to appreciate that in others. And he introduced me to people like James Taylor, Randy Newman, mm. um, big into that kind of sort of folk, folk sort of folk rock, rock as in rock of yore, um, mm -hmm. uh, community of musicians, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I mean, I'll, I'll always remember him putting Stephen Stills music on and saying, oh, Nikki, listen how, listen how easy he makes it sound. You know, James Taylor's another one, um, Bonnie Raitt. So he, he, I, I, I think he'd roll his eyes, but he, he has a similar ease in the way that he sings because he's never been trained to sing. He just opens his mouth and sings. So that aesthetic has become incredibly important and valuable to me, especially as I've gotten older and maybe I've sort of waded through my own musical. You said I could swear, so my own musical BS. <laughs> yeah. I don't want this to get flagged. <laughs> you know? um, no, that's fine. So, and we will sing together, you know, at family gatherings. We'll sing, you know, I'll sing harmonies. There's this lovely sort of shanty folk song that he taught me called My Johnny Was a Shoemaker. And it's got mm. a very obvious, like, high harmony. And and so we'll just start singing it and I'll go up and do the high high harmony. And so, for uh, yeah, we sing together in that sense, you know, completely for fun. Yeah. But he doesn't perform or anything aside from around the kitchen table. Right, right. Yeah. That's <clears throat> interesting because you were talking about the the ease and the, uh, I'm trying to remember what else you said there, but it was, uh, I was noticing that in your new, in your new album, Nowhere Girl, as uh, listening to that uh, compared against some of your older recordings and there is, it felt to me, um, there that there's an ease to this to your vocal quality to these songs not that not that the previous recordings were not easeful but it just i don't know I, that was a that was a felt sense i got from it it was like oh you know i know you've spent um this has been incubating for a long time <laughs> this recording but it, um yeah it's just very uh there's just an easy easeful quality to it when I went as a listener, at least. So. Oh, thank you for saying that, Steve. That that really is kind of the highest compliment. 
um, that someone could pay me at this point in time. I totally agree with you. You know, I'm not immune to, or I'm certainly not immune to self-criticism. I'm my own worst and best critic. Um, yep. And I'm also very pragmatic about taking stock of my previous albums. I stand by them mostly because I have no choice. Right. And that's the thing with <laughs> sure. recording, right? Once it's out there, right. it's out there. So, I mean, it's been, yeah. So you, you mentioned sort of incubation time. It's It's been 10 years since my sophomore album came out, which was 2013. And my debut album came out in 2012. So when I listen to that music, it's a very strange experience. It does feel in a lot of ways like I'm listening to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I am critical and analytical of their delivery in the same way that I would be were it actually somebody that was not me. Mm. Um, There are choices I made in those recordings and in those renditions that I often think, oh, that was bold. So even if I wouldn't make the same choice today, I kind of appreciate the ballsiness of the person who made them, you know, at the age of... 24 20 24 25 mm-hmm. um but i definitely do feel like nowhere girl and all the singing on that and all the writing on that because there's a lot more original music on it it definitely feels a lot more like me mm-hmm. um so i i do appreciate you making that point of comparison because i would agree with you yeah yeah and you were i mean 10 years i mean that's a long <laughs> For anybody, I mean, just as a just as a person, you know, we change <laughs> we change and evolve so much in in ten years time. We're almost not this. I mean, we're not the same person that we were. I'm not as I was a decade ago. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to and so much has happened in the world uh, between uh, 2012 or 20, 2012 and now twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> 2023. I know when you say 2023, it feels positively space age, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, a time. The older I get as well, the more I sort of marvel at the concept of time and aging. And I think, what a slippery sucker. Uh, and so yeah. hard to quantify. There are so yeah. many ways you could quantify it that it almost becomes overwhelming. And you just think, I have no no way of measuring this. You know, mm. is it is it wrinkles? Is it gray hair? Is it wisdom? Is it regret? Um, is it lessons learned? But even then, you know, learning a lesson is one thing, but actually applying what you've learned to the next thing you do is a, is a completely different right. undertaking. Yeah, so I mean, oh, I've just got a headache. I mean, I really need oh, to no. work on that. I mean, just look, <laughs> no, looking back on it. Oh, no, not just, not that. I don't have a headache, but yeah. I, it does make me want to take a very long nap. And in fact, yeah. releasing this album finally, and, and you said to me, which cuts can you play? I said, play anything. I'm so unprecious. I feel like I've been sitting on it so long. It's like sitting on an egg. You know, it's quite uncomfortable. So to hop off mm. it and say, here's the egg, take it, do whatever you want to do with it, offers a great sense of relief. <laughs> but mm. also like, oh my gosh, that, you know, that, a lot's gone into that. And then the 10 yeah. years of living prior to it. Yeah. So when... What what was the seed that started Nowhere Girl? Like where 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 did that start? Did it start in 2012, 2013? Well, as part of 
building up to the 9th of June, which is when this album comes up, um, I'm posting a whole bunch of things that I hope are of interest online, right? It's part of mm-hmm. part and parcel of being a, yep. a musician and an, an independent one and self-managed one and all of that. And one of the things that I thought I would do was that I would dig out old demos, uh, mostly recorded on voice memo, voice note function on my on yep. my iPhone, and call them memo demos. And I would share these and I would edit them so that you could hear a bit of the demo and then it morphs into the recorded version as it exists on Nowhere Girl. Cool. And I found demos for almost all of the tunes, except the title track, except Nowhere Girl. And some of these demos date back to 2011, 2012. I must have written the title track, Steve, when I was in graduate school, when I was at Manhattan School of Music. I was there from 2009 to 2011. It was a a two-year master's degree. And I must have written it at that time. I can't find early kind of sketches of it on, you know, my phone or, or elsewhere or hard drive. And that tells you how long that song has existed. Mm. And it has been worked on over the 10 years. And there have been arrangement things that have you know, changed over time yep. and as it's been played. But it's the title track of the album. And I think what happened inadvertently is when I gathered the music that I wanted to record on this album. And Nowhere Girl was one of those songs because it had never been recorded. And I'd always been meaning to record it for an album that was going to be commercially released the theme of place of identity of travel that came to the fore just looking at the songs that I gathered so I was lucky because I think that having a concept or a theme for an album is very useful both in terms of your press release sorry to sound you know calculated (laughs) calculated or, or callous but it's true, you know, stories are, are what journalists and broadcasters want. It helps sell the album. It helps the artists talk about the album. Here I am. Ah, ha, ha. But um, if you don't go into it saying, well, this is the theme of the album. It's about song. It's about love songs or it's the music of, I don't know, I think of Theo Blackman's wonderful Kate Bush album. You know, yeah. it's one one artist's music. If you don't go into it, a theme can still emerge. And that's what happened with this. And it allowed me to then take a step back and say, okay, Nowhere Girl, one of the other songs is called Traveller. There is a song about New York. There's a song about Paris. There's a song about South Africa. Okay, cool. Great. There's a theme. So it wasn't necessarily that I thought 10 years ago, I'm going to record an album called Nowhere Girl. No, it's just that (laughs) Nowhere Girl was one of the songs. I I love that title. And I do like to have the title of the album be the title of a track. And it was partly I, I, that that song does kind of sum up the shtick, the story behind this album. Mm. But also I like that there's a little tip of the hat to Nowhere Boy, which was a Beatles tune, right? Right. Um, yep. And I cover the Beatles, you know, in some way or form on, on all my albums. But also they were from the United Kingdom. I'm from the United Kingdom. So, you know, I like those sort of slightly... You could stretch it and yeah. it could mean something. Uh, tip of the hats. Let's listen to another track from Nowhere Girl. This one is entitled A Morning. Mm-hmm. 
stroke My newly woken feet bare-heeled and clean Brushed with dew the pastoral scene they greet Oh, we're so cold I must be first to breathe your fragrance a taste so pure I stand in trance alone. I love the bookends of it, of starting with Nowhere Girl and then it ends with My Love, I think is the is yeah. the last track. And that's it just felt so I don't know. It it Nowhere Girl and like a the the My Love part of it um really was a great set of programming. Do you put a lot of thought into the how the order of the songs on the programming, and is that also true for your live performances? Oh well, I I love that, Steve, and I feel like I should say yes. That's how I intended it to be, and it obviously <laughs> hit its mark. But in fact, now that you bring it up, I think oh, that is nice programming. And uh, I had other reasons for opening with Nowhere Girl and finishing with My Love. I think part of it was that they're both up-tempo tunes and I definitely do lean towards medium tempo and ballads. I love a ballad. So I think that was the reason why I felt like I had to start with something that would grab the listener's attention. And that happened to be Nowhere Girl. Yes, it also kind of sets the tone for the whole album. And then I also felt like I had to finish with something that was up-tempo because the tune that precedes My Love is Keep It Simple, which is the only duo tune, a voice piano duet on the album. And I always feel with voice piano duets or voice bass duets or anything that is much smaller in ensemble size than the rest of the album, that should always be the penultimate tune because I don't know where else you can really put it. Um, so this is on, this is a long way. <laughs> You'll see succinctness is not my strong suit. But this is a long way of answering your question that obviously, yes, I do to a degree think about programming and order in that sense. So that tune was always going to be penultimate. So it had to be contrasted with something. And again, I, I don't have a lot of choice for faster um, more uh, vibrant numbers. So, but I but I love what you point out about that bookend because Nowhere Girl was written when I was in graduate school. I was feeling very lost musically. I was also away from home. I was living in a dorm uh, at Manhattan School of Music and having a little bit of an existential crisis. Maybe it was a well, I wasn't quite quarter life yet, but pre quarter life crisis. <laughs> and uh, my love is about. My, was about Cape Town in South Africa and so maybe yeah it kind of chronicles me being in New York for nearly five years and leaving New York and winding my way back to Cape Town I, I spent a year in London uh, en route basically um, and really feeling okay with being back in in Cape Town uh, and feeling like it was home and so coming back so I like I, I love that um, awesome. I'm going to say that I did that <laughs> <Maybe>. deliberately um <laughs> And a further, a further, just a little add-on to your question is, so because it was 10 years ago that I last released an LP, yeah. there were streaming platforms. They were not what they are today. I didn't have to play any streaming Spotify playlisting right. games in 2013. 
uh, I worked with a wonderful publicist called Anne Braithwaite for my 2013 album, which was all piano voice duets. Uh, it was called Space and Time. And the press that we approached, it was blogs, magazines, broadcast, mm. which feels very old school <laughs> now yeah. by 2023 standards. Right. So this time around, I do, I've had, I, I had to school myself on all the streaming platforms, how I can interact with them, how some of them don't allow you, you know, you don't make playlists on all of them. Some of them you do when you want to be shown to be an active participant in the platform because it may bet you. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's fun, you know, and I know Spotify is not really on the side of musicians, but at the same time, I'm very intrigued by the platform and by the tool. And there's something very heady, Steve, about the fact that, and I've always felt this way about radio, but I feel like streaming platforms kind of just take it to the next rung of the ladder, which is that your music can be there and you have no idea who's going right. to hear it. <laughs> if I look at musicians who have over, I don't know, a million monthly listeners, that is, that's amazing if you consider how huge the world is, right? right. So that I find quite exciting. There's a sort of thrilling mm element to that and I'm happy to lean into that and I'm happy to learn about it all but because streaming didn't exist 10 years ago and I've had to learn about streaming platforms after I made this album because it wasn't part of the intention of making yeah. it I've still made an album yeah I've still made an 11 track album and I'm interested in how do we open it how do we close it do we have variety where are if there are tracks that have special guests on them like Lila Biali duets with me on one track where is that track sitting in the playlist mm -hmm. we can't have two ballads back to back and it's a very different mo because i know that a lot of artists nowadays they're putting out eps because they're basically just leading with five singles and then once you've led with five singles you've got an ep or I know an artist who's just released an album, but they released maybe it was an eight track album and they released five of the tracks as singles, right? you know, six months before the release date. That's not for me yeah. because I still like the fun of I'm going to give you a little listen to two, three tracks. Yeah. But then there are still eight tracks you haven't heard and you're not going to hear them until the album comes out on the 9th of June. So I looked at a lot of, sorry, we've now gone no, into, right. you know, <laughs> strategy and, and thoughts on streaming. But, but be, again, because I'm doing my, doing my own press outreach, I get to make my own decisions as to how am I going to launch singles, how many singles, what, over what period... Yeah. Um, so it's been very interesting looking at other artists and seeing what they do and saying, oh, I think that really works well. Or I don't want to have a single come out in January when the album's coming out in May. Yeah. That, that for me, you lose, right, lose so you much. lose any anticipation that you might build up. So, yeah, exactly. And also, I don't want to release half of the album in single right. form, <laughs> you know, so, you know, each to their yeah. own. But so, yeah, I, so the short answer is I do think about it. And I think that the next album I record, I will be thinking about it differently because I might be thinking about things more in terms of what gets, what is a better chance of being playlisted yeah. on Spotify right. or Amazon. Yeah. Do I, they like, they like chill tunes. I was in a coffee shop yesterday, Steve, and I was very aware of the music that was playing. It was sort of jazzy. And I was like, 
I thought, to, well, not like, I shouldn't <laughs> use the word like, I thought to myself, yes, okay, mm. this, is play, this, is, this is a playlistable tune. Right. So I don't think it's awful to go into recording a new album n- bearing in yeah. mind. Because the point is we, we make music because we want people to hear right. it. And there's now... <laughs> Streaming now offers that that opportunity to so many more people. Right. So, do you also? <clears throat> I'm imagining the answer is yes. But um, how much? Uh, how much social are you having to do? Like, are you on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that as well? Like, trying to get the word out or build anticipation towards so, the ninth. Yes, I am, because it is my responsibility both to this music, because I think there is nothing sadder than putting time, money, and effort into making an album and then not doing due diligence in giving it a fair chance to be heard by people who might write about it or who might speak about it or who might program it for broadcasting and... It's follow through, right, Steve? I always equate it to, it's like having a tennis racket, the ball comes to you, you hit the ball and you don't follow through. So the ball has no chance of getting over the net, right? Right. I want the ball to get over the net. What happens to the ball once it gets over the net is out of my control. There's nothing I can do about it, but at least I can make sure I follow through and it gets over the net. And that follow through is doing a press rollout, making sure you do it at least two months before the album comes out, um, reaching out to people, personalizing it. Again, you don't ask, you don't get. Right. So the least you can do is yeah. ask. And someone will either not reply to your email with your news release and your links and whatever it is, or they'll reply and say, I listen to it, it's not my cup of tea. Or they'll reply and say, I really like this and I will give you some sort yeah. of coverage you know so yes i'm on twitter i'm on instagram and on facebook i'm not on tiktok i'm not interested i'm too old Uh, but also you know there's only so many hours in the day um one has to know one's limits i love twitter i love interacting on twitter within with people in the jazz community i can be a little bit contentious i run my (laughs) mouth off virtually I, i i as i've gotten older i've gotten a lot better at writing the tweet and then saying, well, would you say this face-to-face with someone over a table at a coffee shop or at a dinner party? If the answer is yes, then I'm happy to put it out there if I can stand by it. Um, Facebook, similarly, you know, I I sort of generally copy and paste what happens on Twitter or Instagram. Instagram I love because I love photos and a lot of the people I follow are photographers or people who design beautiful clothes or make who are fine artists um, yeah. or foodies. So I, I get a lot of personal yeah, pleasure same. out of scrolling through Instagram. But also, Steve, I love, yeah, I, I also love following musicians and label execs and publicists and writers and broadcasters on Instagram and Twitter because I'm genuinely interested in what they're doing. I'm interested in who's putting out music. I'm interested in who's gigging. I'm interested in in watching my peers go from strength to strength i i really i i applaud mm. that 
and uh, I love this community. So, you know, for me, it it doesn't feel like a total schlep. Um, I will say, though, that doing social media rollout for this, I, you know, have made a plan. Again, this album, I should should add, is coming out on a a label called Antic Records, which is a a Nat Cohen's label, and it's co-run it's it's a really beautiful yeah i mean I, I feel incredibly privileged to be on it and keeping the company of people like anat who i absolutely mm. adore yeah. um vocalists like amy savini melissa stiliano hillary gardner tal masayah is on it as well he's an israeli bass player and guitarist um uh, Sarah Caswell violinist just released a beautiful oh, album yeah, on it so awesome. it's a boutique album out of new york yeah, she's uh, Sarah's just a wonderful person. So it's it's a really beautiful roster, and so Nowhere Girl is coming out on Anzac Records, and I owe it to the album, but I also owe it to the label. Uh, if I'm not going to spring for a publicist, right? <laughs> you got to roll up your sleeves. I better and, be doing something. Yeah. Exactly, and um, and luckily they were happy for me to do that, and I've just been very sure to keep them in the loop throughout it. You know, are they linked to my massive Excel spreadsheet of about 350 (laughs) odd contacts that I have, you know, really focused on collecting and finding email addresses and, and I'm, I'm constantly updating it and is so-and-so, no, they're not interested. Okay. You know, and I've made sure they have a link to that. So they know that I'm doing outreach and that I'm following up. It's a schlep, but has to be done. Um, and, uh, yeah, I have a social media, you know, plan, yep. you know, loosely for the next, how many weeks out are we? I don't know, four, four, when's the 9th of June? So it's, it's a while away, five, but, and when five, this airs. Six weeks, something. Five yeah. weeks. <laughs> just started sweating, Steve. Oh, Take I'm, not a breath. On, I'm not on track. No, but yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and thinking of what am I going to put out? I, I did a week when the first single Lovers for the Birds came out. I did the run up to it of five days, posting every day. By the weekend, because the single came out on a Friday, I was so sick of myself, yeah. Steve. And I really thought, oh my gosh, am I supposed to do this again next week and next week? And I had a lie down. And in fact, the next week, I didn't. I had a whole plan of I was going to post every day. And, you know, there's there are a couple um, social media experts who are like, you need 30 days of social media posting in the run. And I was like, I just can't. Yeah. It just, it didn't feel authentic right. yeah. to me because it felt in your face and it's and and it works for other people like really i'm not i'm not passing criticism or judgment on everyone's got to do what they've got to do but i was tired and i was tired of myself so i took a week off and then a new single is coming out on the 5th of may and i'm going to be posting every day this week but at the same time i tried to balance it so again i'll do a little demo of the tune I've made a spot a Spotify playlist that incorporates the theme that obviously has music by mostly other people yeah. on it. Uh, and that's a great joy for me. It's all about this is the travelers coming out next. So it's all about songs inspired by, you know, travel mm. and on the yeah. road. Um, I'll do another, you know, band feature. I'm doing band features for each of the members mm, of, the, awesome. of the band and also Odette Levery who produced it. Yeah, <clears throat> just, you know, little and sort of write. And I like to write. So, you know, little captions. So, yeah, I am posting, but I'm also trying to not make myself throw yeah. up. <laughs> I think that's important. And it, you touched on something uh, I think is yeah is key. I, I, um, I read a lot about... Um, in people that are successful or influencers or whatever, and there's a 
there's a man named Kevin Kelly who wrote a really great article called up 1000 true fans. And, um, he talks a lot about like being authentic and being doing you like there, there's these, um, you know, like, Oh, you, like you were saying, Oh, you have to do 30 posts in order to do X or you have to do, you know, there's these sort of truisms out there, but at the end of the day, it's about being yourself and being authentic and, um, the, the your actual true fans are the ones that are gonna show up, or the actual yeah. people that you want to engage with are the ones that are gonna be there because yeah. they like you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I mean, also, I mean, Steve, to touch on what you just said there, you know, being authentic. I mean, how absolutely bat I won't swear <laughs> bat beep crazy that in 2023 the idea of being authentic is something that requires thought <laughs> and energy and doing yeah more often than yeah. not okay not for everyone but because we have all these platforms and all these ways to look at people now and to be struck by the exterior and the sheen and so we're so far removed from what people actually look like right. and sound what like <laughs> their real personality traits are. i know i write i'm thinking so much of you know like when we see pictures of famous hollywood actors well, well mostly actresses and you see pictures of them without makeup on yeah and it's like oh that's what julia roberts looks like when she's not done up and i often think oh my gosh these people are so much more beautiful yeah. and so much more interesting looking without makeup on and so much more youthful oh, looking. Yeah. I find an excess of makeup incredibly aging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have friends who will roll their eyes and be like, oh, then Nikki goes again on a soapbox all about, well, you know, there's a fine line. But um, did you happen to see the sorry? Academy Awards this year? I don't know if you watch. So yeah, I did. I, I'm a big award nut. I like to watch right. their, the ceremonies and cry. So I find it very what cathartic. Really? <laughs> had me in tears actually was lady gaga the bad plastic surgery no well <laughs> she came out with no makeup oh yes on. her bare face right no makeup yeah. on hair and a it was so yeah. great <laughs> go ahead <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you're talking about sorry yeah no i'm i'm totally with you um because the other thing is they shot to her they cut the camera cut to her when she was sitting in the audience and she was all dolled up and it, it's oh, really? very distracting, actually. Yeah, because she, because she basically, her coming out barefaced to do her performance was the equivalent of someone else doing a costume change and getting their makeup touched, right? right? So when she sang, we're all like, oh, she's barefaced and it's so wonderful. And, uh, but also, in fact, it meant I wasn't distracted really by how she looked. I celebrated it, I loved it. And then I leaned in to listen to whatever song she was you yeah. know, singing yeah. and showcasing. And we're so often when those cameras cut to close-ups of the actors and actresses sitting in the audience at the Oscars or the Golden Globes, very often I think audience members are looking at them and saying, if the makeup's good, it's good. But if it's not good or if the plastic surgery is fresh, <laughs> right. then they're saying, did she have, oh, did she have a brow lift again? Yeah, yeah it hasn't relaxed yet. So that's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, so it can be very distracting. Yeah. But um, yes, we, we live in a time where being authentic is something to be applauded because it takes effort and energy. That is just, yeah. that's ass backwards, it isn't is. it? It's bizarre. <laughs> Here's another of my favorites that we've talked about on the show. This track is called My Love.
Once they stretched for days into the darkness of my mind Yellow ribbons weaving softly in the summer haze A mirage of still life painting, both perfect and yet breaking A place of heady hope, it never goes away Oh my love, oh my land Oh my love, oh my land One of the things that I find really refreshing about this community the jazz community in particular is that it's, you know, it is so authentic. As I've gotten to meet a lot of uh, artists as yourself that I admire, and then I get to talk to them, and I'm like, oh, they're just a person. Like, they're just like, they're, they're not just like me, because they're, they're unique and they have their, their artistic abilities, but they are just like me, and that they have the same struggles. Yeah. They drink coffee. Like, they, they're just a person, and this is what they do, but... <laughs> For me, it's easy to um, romanticize or think, oh, they just rolled out of bed one day and they made this album, or, you know, it just mm. came so easily, and then that's that's just so yeah. far from the truth. But it's very reassuring to know um, th- that we're all just we're all just humans. <laughs> we, we all have the same. Basically, at the end of the day, we all have the same struggles yeah. and and. I mean, and 100%. Yeah, 100%. To a certain degree. Jazz, jazz stars, they're just like <laughs> yeah. us. But, uh, but yeah, I, I like, Steve, that you did say that you, you said and then you stopped saying it, um, stopped speaking what you said, and they drink coffee. I like that that's your barometer for, is somebody normal? <laughs> Do they drink coffee? Um, but, but I completely agree with you, and that's why I was saying to you again before you hit record that I'm so glad that you that you are helming this podcast because this is such a lovely medium for the kind of conversations where listeners walk away saying, oh gosh, okay, this thing that I've been going, it's universal. Or for, you know, in the case of musicians or students of jazz students. And I know I felt this way when I listened to your interviews with, you know, Kate and and Tierney Sutton, who I also adore, just the way that they talk about the art and the craft. And similarly, I've heard interviews with Theo and I just, listen to them and I feel reassured. And that Mm. is so valuable in terms of both just a dialogue that should be happening, um, but also in terms of sort of a a teaching moment, uh, not to sound like Oprah, but so much of jazz is younger generations, older generations, and how we're all studying. You are perpetually studying this music if you're a jazz musician. So... Theo is still a student of the music, and I'm sure he would say as much. But mm-hmm. yet, to someone like me, or certainly to somebody who's one of his students at Manhattan School of Music, Theo is a master, and they are the student, right? But that dynamic, it doesn't go away, and Theo has his teachers. Theo has his, you know, Meredith Meredith Monks, who he will mm-hmm. constantly perhaps be, be looking at as somebody who is, you know... That, and mentorship is such a big part of this community, and that's something that I also love about it. So I think that right. that open transparency where people can hear what process means to other jazz musicians and they can see their own process and their own challenges and their own successes in that is so, so important. It does. It helps us keep on going. It helps fill our tanks when we realize we're not alone. And that's a very, that's a human, human universal truth, as you, as you point out. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. 
jazz singers. Who? They're just like yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> who do you have? Do you who do you consider to be a mentor to? Or do you have somebody right now that you consider a mentor? I consider a lot of my past teachers, people who I actually had lessons from, whether it was a handful of lessons or whether it was throughout a, a, a course of university study, I do try to cultivate relationships with those teachers so that I can retain them as mentors once I'm well out of school. So Peter Eldridge is the gem dream person that I learnt with when I was at Manhattan School of Music and I consider Peter, uh, well I consider Peter a dear friend uh, and a mentor to this day, I adore him. Kate McGarry is somebody I met before I went to graduate school and she's in fact, she's the reason that I applied to Manhattan School of Music because she was teaching there at the time and when I was in my undergrad at the University of Cape Town, I came to the States and it was the era of MySpace. Gosh, I'm going to age myself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I reached out to the vocalists that I was really smitten with and reached out to them via MySpace and said, I'm coming to New York and I wondered if I could get a private lesson. Um, and I was amazed that they said yes, because they were also all teachers. So they were happy to teach. So I had a private lesson with Kate and a private lesson with Gretchen Parlato. And my lesson with Kate, at the time she was still living in New York, and I always tease her because she went from my lesson, she and her her husband, Keith Gantz, the wonderful guitarist, they were about to go off on a silent retreat. And I, and I, I don't know, for some reason, I always just remember that. She literally was going from whatever rental studio we had the lesson at in Midtown, New York, and she was off on a, on a silent retreat. But she said to me, oh, well, wh where are you going to study or what are you thinking? And I th said, well, I, I'm looking at Manhattan School of Music and um, New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. And she said, oh, I teach at Manhattan School of Music. You should definitely consider it. So I did. She was still there when I auditioned. She was my teacher of choice when I was accepted. And then she and Keith moved out of New York. So I ended up being passed on to Peter, which ended up being a complete uh, a door opening moment, right? But as a result, I had this connection with Kate and she would come back and teach and we've stayed in touch over the years and I definitely consider her a mentor. I, I really, I treasure her. And then someone like Tierney Sutton, I've never had a lesson with Tierney, but I have been in email contact with her in the past. I've gone to hear her. She was in Cape Town doing a masterclass because she was performing at the Cape Town International Jazz Festival and I remember going to that. Um, and she's just become someone who's really dear to me and has been just really lovely to me and supportive. And so, again, I would consider her a mentor. Same thing with Luciana Souser. I've never had a lesson with her. I've attended, you know, a, a sort of a group masterclass. But I, I just feel like she's someone I could email if I had a question or if I wanted to play her something and get her feedback on it. So the singers within the jazz community, many of them I would consider to be mentors. Gretchen's another, you know, I had a, a couple of lessons with her over the year and the years, and I, I just appreciate her very soft-spokenness. And I appreciate that although her style of singing has, it, it has both been praised and it has 
I feel like it's come under fire, come under criticism mm. over the years, which I suppose is is par for the course, right? Yeah. We like to often criticize people who've also kind of risen to great heights. It makes them easy targets. Um, and I've had some interesting conversations with her about that criticism because I understand where it comes from, but I often think that it can, the criticism can be analyzed and unpacked so that it actually doesn't hold up. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's maybe a conversation for for another day. All that stuff about you know the breathy tone and it's the same thing. I mean, it was Blossom Jerry's birthday, I think, yesterday, and Blossom's another one who actually gets similar flack to that which Gretchen sometimes gets, which is oh her little you know her little breathy voice and her voice was little, but it wasn't quiet. And in fact, Blossom's voice was not breathy at all. Her chords were completely connecting. You know, it's tiny but mighty. And Gretchen's voice, Gretchen's tone. She uses breath as a coloring device. She's not breathy because that is all she's able to do. And when she improvises, she may turn it on more. And when she's singing with lyrics, she'll turn it off. But as with Blossom, there's always this core, this kernel of sound. You know, so I could... So, so it's a, yeah, so it's an interesting thing. And then there are some singers who are breathy, who sound, frankly, I, I pretty much loathe and I struggle to hear their lyrics. And it's this kind of dreamy, dreamy... And I just think, would it kill you to give me a consonant at the end of that phrase so I can hear what the hell you're singing about, you know? But it appeals to a lot of people. There's a great sense of trend. Anyway, so I've, I've uh, as, as per usual, I've gone off on a tangent. But yeah, those are, those are the, some of the people I would definitely consider to be, to be mentors. And I mean, gosh, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm in the, the Theo, Kate, Tierney, Luciana, Peter. I'm in that fan club. So I'm, I'm, I'm. I feel very, very fortunate because I know when I say their names out loud, I do, I sit back and I go, oh, these are people whose music I just love. So to consider them at the end of an email is, is mind boggling. It's brilliant. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Another thing that this guy, Kevin Kelly says is if you're not, if you're not pissing off 50% of the people, then you're probably not doing it, doing it very well. So it's like, I always try to take that into consideration over people that don't like, I'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's, that's just fine. I, I don't want to be mm. everybody's cup of tea and my taste in music is not like what I like, not everybody else will like. And, yeah. and that's, that's fine as well. Um, how, how impactful was Oded on you and this, I mean, he produced this album. Is that right? Yeah. And um, what's that like working with a producer like that? I'm glad you asked about Oded. So I met Oded over 10 years ago when I moved to New York. I'm very good friends with his wife, who is also one of my favorite singers, Amy Savini. And I befriended Amy and ended up doing, at the time Amy was doing some artist management while she was also tending to her own wonderful career as a, as a musician and a performer. And Oded mm. was co-running Anzac Records with Anat. Oded is Israeli and he and Anat went to high school together. They have been friends for, you know, so many years. So I... I was at Manhattan School of Music, M MSM. How many times can you say Manhattan School of Music in one, one interview? I mean, I'm starting to twitch. <laughs> Just PTSD here from grad school. Yeah, but right. um, I, was at, I was at college and I ended up doing some assistant work for Amy. 
uh, for her management company. And then I ended up doing some assistant work for Oded and for Anzic Records and uh, spent some of my summer in their office, in their joint office. And that's how I really got to know Amy and Oded. And they became, I mean, surrogate parents to me in a sense, but but really just very, very good friends. Because I don't feel like they're that much older than me. Um, they're much wiser. It should be noted. They are much wiser, but not older. And they, they're much more, they're much more sprightly than I am, certainly at this point in time. But I got to know them through that and we became great friends. And I knew that Oded produced because he had produced Amy's records and then he produced records for Duchess, which is a vocal trio that Amy, Melissa and Hillary are in that is just beyond wonderful. Mm. So, so musical and so much fun as a, as a group. And I'd chatted with Oded over the years. We would talk about music and approaches to producing. And my sophomore album, I worked with a producer for the first time. I worked with Matt Pearson, who is now of Samara Joy fame, Matt Pearson, because mm -hmm. he produced her first album and he manages her as well. Oh, wow. Uh, but I knew Matt as a producer, again, because... I had been doing arts admin work in New York and I ended up doing administrative work on a project that he was producing. Uh, you know, so I, I kind of, again, jazz is a small community and I knew Matt had produced Jane Monite's albums, Brad Meldow, Art of Trio. Um, and he had a, he came from an interesting place. So I asked him to produce Space and Time. It was a really interesting experience, Steve. It was a good experience. Matt and I get on very well. Mm. And I learned a lot about what I want from a producer. And it's a, it's a, the term producer is a bit of a strange one. Yeah, because it is. So many producers do so many different things. So there's no stock answer for what are the responsibilities of a producer. Some producers will schedule rehearsals for the album for you. They'll book the studio for you. Others, other producers literally will just show up on the day of the recording and give you their kind of two cents. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them will oversee mixing. Um, Matt oversaw all the mixing. I don't think I gave any mixing notes. I wasn't there for it, which was very different because my debut album, Freedom Flight, Steve, I, I, I self-produced. And it was the first time I'd recorded. So oh, it was a huge learning curve. And I worked with some really brilliant engineers. And I was lucky for that because I had no idea what I was doing. And they were so encouraging in terms of giving notes. It's a, it's a, all of these dynamics and power imbalances, it's very tricky and it can be easy to navigate or it can be very hard to navigate. So they're fascinating relationship dynamics. Yeah. So after working with Matt, I had 10 years and I came to this album and I I didn't necessarily know I wanted a producer, but I knew I wanted the experience of working with Oded as producer. So it was very specific to him and knowing what he brings to the role, because I've spoken with him about his work over the so many years. Uh, he also musical directs for a nut. He does arrangements for her tentet. You know, he's a consummate musician, but he's also able to take that step back and be somebody's ears and feedback in a studio recording environment. And he was that. It, and I'll tell you, Steve, what was even more precious to me than 
my experience having him produce this was seeing how much my bandmates enjoyed being produced by him. That was incredibly gratifying to me because there was always a chance that my pianist, my drummer, bassist, you know, guests would come in and have a horrible time with whoever was tasked with producing this album. Um, and there's nothing they could do about it because it's my album and I want him there as producer and all that. And he, and they adored it. And what's more, Lila Bialy, who is um, both a, a dear friend of mine and she's a fantastic vocalist, Canadian vocalist. Mm -hmm. Her husband is also a wonderful producer and drummer, Ben Whitman. Yeah who coincidentally I met through Peter Eldridge because he's produced a lot of Peter's stuff. So when Lila records an album, she works with Ben almost exclusively because, you know, why their not? relationship <laughs> is intact and why not? Yeah. Exactly. You have that ease of communication. Mm -hmm. It saves time. It saves headaches. So it was fascinating. Lila came in to record Heart Like a Wheel, the Anna McGarrigal song that we duet on, one of the one of two covers on the album. And I was interested to see how she would experience working with Oded because she doesn't really work with other producers. Yeah. And I remember her looking at me after the session and saying, Oded is such a fantastic producer. Oh my gosh. I loved it. And she deferred to him and she really used him. That's the mm. thing, you know, what do you think? And, the, and those conversations were happening. So I can't say enough great things about my experience working with Oded. And then... Again, you know, it wasn't a given that this would come out on Anzac Records. I shopped the album around and I shopped it to Anzac Records as I did to any other label, you know, um, because Oded's work as a producer is separate to the label. Yeah, yeah. And I absolutely wanted to respect that. So when I said to Oded, it would mean so much to me to be on the Anzac Records roster and would you consider this coming out? And when he said yes, my immediate feeling was I'm so glad I get to now continue this working relationship with him right. because Odette is brilliant in so many in so many ways beyond the music you know in terms of business in terms of getting all of your publishing ducks in a row which he'd, I'd already had a consultation with him on that you know a couple of years ago and I thought yeah I, I, I want to be using Odette as a sounding board for strategy and business ideas and figuring out how we can give this music the best possible chance at at life. Uh, that makes right. it sound like we were having a baby together, but we weren't. You know, <laughs> we have our own fabulous you, you were birthing. But in a, a certain sense, we were. were. Yes, this, this yeah, album. exactly. We birthed yeah. this album together. So um, it was a wonderful experience. It's given me more insight into what a producer can be, what a producer should be. It's also a very personal thing. We all need, we need different things from producers, but um, as a vocalist and the kind of musician that I am, it was a fantastic experience working with Odette. So in the sessions, would he like tweak arrangements or would he like coach you on your performance of the track or like what sorts of things was he doing that really you know, Help. put the polish on it. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing is we did pre-production, which meant he looked at all of my charts. He looked at my lyrics. If he felt that there were improvements that could be made, he would suggest them. I say suggest with 
with absolute sort of clarity because he made it very clear that I would always have final say on things. We weren't going to enter into a fight about, no, it really should be, you know, my my country and not my love. You know, he was right. going to make a suggestion. I could take it or I could leave it. Um, mm. So we did a whole pre-production thing, looking at the lyrics and, and looking at angles for them. And then... He had made suggestions like the one tune father. He wasn't sure about the where it went on the chorus in terms of harmony and melody because it's got a very strong folky verse, very singable. And then it goes a little bit jazzier in inverted commas in the chorus because it goes somewhere unexpected and it winds its way back. And he said, I don't know if I love the chorus. And I said... I'm actually quite proud of the writing in the chorus because of the element of it taking you somewhere a little surprising, but not club, you know, sort of not clubbing you over the head with that because it's not like suddenly you've gone from something quite diatonic to something incredibly crunchy. No, I felt like it was a tasteful amount of crunch and it resolved. You know, my big mm. thing about tension in jazz is if you don't have the resolution, then you don't have a successful situation on your hands. <laughs> uh, so I, I heard what he said, but I, but I, I disagreed and I stood by it. So that's you know a little example of our working process. And then in the studio, he sat on the floor. the The drums were on the floor, and piano was like semi partitioned, and I was in a vocal booth, and bass was in a booth. And he sat on the floor, and he would make notes and. We'd do a take and then he'd come into the vocal booth and say, I just think when you're delivering that line, it's a little bit, um, I think you could chill out a little bit to be a little bit gentler with it. Okay, cool, great. I don't think we need to do any more takes of this. I think you've got it. Um, and then mixing and mastering, he was invaluable, you know. Right. We, we yeah. need to get a warmer sound here. I'm feeling this and that. And um, so that, that was how he was sort of involved. That was the kind of feedback he would give. I see. Yeah. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, I've, pleasure. South Africa, New York, Toronto. Obviously, you moved to New York to go to school and study. And then how, what was the connection to Toronto and how did you end up in Canada? I moved, I left New York. I moved to London for a year. I didn't know it would be a year, but it was a year. And then I moved back to Cape Town. My family's in South Africa. I missed them terribly. And I felt like my musical career wasn't where I wanted it to be, but it may never get to where I wanted it to be. So if it was going to take 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, would I look back at the end of that and feel like I'd missed out on other things that lead to a happy life along the way. Sure. And also because I knew that it might take 10, 15, 20 years, I felt like I needed to have a happier life while I was still trying to chip away at having a career as a performing musician. Uh, Steve, I don't have any delusions of grandeur and Tierney Sutton once spoke about it so beautifully, which is she called it doing the thing. Mm -hmm. She said, I don't expect to get paid a lot of money to do the thing but I just want to do the thing. I think that I'm good at it, you know. So, yeah. um, and I loved that because that was, because I don't come from a family of musicians. I know my dad often said to me, what is your, what is your goal here? 
you know, do you want to be Sting? <laughs> and I kind of had to explain to him how jazz musicians around me were making a living from their music. And that was all I wanted. And that's all I still want, really, is to be able to make income from traveling with my music, regroup, make a new album, put that out, travel in support of that, and then have collaborative opportunities come about while all this is happening because people say, I'm interested in what you're doing. And, you know, and, and again, to really then foster even more of a sense of community. That's all I want. Beautiful. Is how am I paying rent at the end of the month? Is it money from music? And it could be teaching. It could be publishing royalties. It could be songwriting for others. You know, I, I would love to write for others and co-write with others. And I, I'd love to explore that. Again, it's all these streams of how can you make revenue yeah. and is it music related? And also, I've done a lot of arts admin work. I enjoy that work. Um, right now, I, my day job is that I teach um, jazz vocal students at the University of Toronto and I'm also a booking agent at a boutique jazz agency. Sweet. And uh, I love it. I didn't know that I would. And it's the kind of work, Steve, that if you'd said to me 10 years ago, Nikki, why don't you just go and you know become a jazz booking agent? I would have said, oh, I'll be damned if I'm going to help <laughs> other jazz artists realize their dreams when I can't realize mine. But you know what? I'm over 30, Steve. Um, I really like the feeling of having a salary yeah. and being able to buy designer coffee there you, you know go. Um, <laughs> and this this jazz booking agency's roster of 20 odd musicians they are astonishing they have completely realized their dreams so there's like seriously no conflict of interest and uh, and they're the kind of musicians because they are so established it's really great pleasure to be working on their behalf to get them more work and I'm learning a ton sure. I'm learning an absolute ton so I moved back to Cape Town and I thought well let me you know let me live my life because I don't know if the music thing's gonna ever solidify and I still don't quite yeah. frankly you know it, it, and, and even when you do reach one goal that's not a resting place as you know and as we all know too well right so what are you doing while you're trucking on basically and uh, I got teaching work I was very lucky to get teaching work at the University of Cape Town and that taught me all about how much I adore teaching jazz at a tertiary level I learned a huge amount um, I loved it I absolutely loved teaching there uh, it's a fabulous jazz department at the University of Cape Town and then I met my husband, my now husband, and he said to me, I really want to go and have the experience of living and working abroad. And I thought, oh, I'm exhausted. I just got, I just came, you know, <laughs> I, just I just moved here. back and I just got here exactly. And I'm loving having my family around. And, you know, I had a niece by that point. Aww. And Cape Town is Cape Town is a fantastic place, Steve, you know, the, the kind of lifestyle you can have, um, being outdoors, which is, you know, something you, you probably appreciate being in Oregon, and temperate weather and uh, temperate climate. But Sign me up. <laughs> I, yeah, but because I had not given up on wanting to have a career in music, I also acknowledged that Cape Town is wonderful. But South Africa is very far away from the rest of the world. And part of what kept me going so long in New York was a little bit of an unhealthy, but also understandable 
sense of when you live in New York, anything can happen. You just don't know. Um, right. And yes, it is naive, but it's also necessary, I think, to live there and to do the kind of work that we do. That sort of, you know, um, that sense of ooh, anticipation and percolating excitement. Uh, you know, jo Joe Laurie was going on the road with Sting. Like, that's right. a New York moment. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, and it, not that I thought that could happen for me, but again, you just never know, you know, that thing, and it keeps you going. Yeah. So given that my my husband wanted to move, we basically, I, I didn't want to go back to the USA because the visa thing is such a headache. It's so expensive. And I wanted to go somewhere and feel like I could, I feel like I was there a hundred percent, um, which meant having access to almost everything that a citizen would. Um, and that is the case with Canada and with immigrating. And, uh, we'd never been here, but we, we, we decided to just take the jump, um, because they're so welcoming to foreigners. And because you do, you get, sorry, Sorry, my my fellow Americans, but you know you get healthcare, universal healthcare. Um, right. We have. Uh, I can apply that. for grants. <laughs> exactly. I I can apply for grants. You know, in when I lived in New York, there were so many opportunities I couldn't apply for them because I wasn't, you know, an American citizen or on a green card or anything like that. And this album was funded by Canada Council for the Arts. The first first. Mm. One of the first grants I applied for, I haven't been successful. I want that want to be clear about that in all the grants that I've applied for. But this was one of the first, and I was bowled over to be given given the opportunity to be supported by them. And that's how I funded Nowhere Girl. And, you know, to have access to a system like that is a total gift. So that's how we ended up moving here. And we've, we've been here three years, and Canada's been very good to both of us. And I've really... It's been challenging at times moving to a new jazz community at the ripe yeah. old age of 86. And <laughs> it's very hard to make friends when you're an adult, you know, regardless of your industry or community. It's it exhausting. Yeah. Socializing is exhausting, Steve. This, <laughs> not this, socializing with you. This is this is very energizing, I want to say. But right. other right, people, right. it's exhausting. Totally knackering. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, but as I've put in the time and learnt more about the Canadian jazz community. I've I've just been met by some fantastically talented musicians, some yeah. really wonderful people. Oh yeah. Uh people who are willing to, you know, have a little gossip with me, which is very important. <laughs> and uh and I'm and I'm very and I'm still intrigued. You know, yeah. there's more for me to for me to me to discover in here. So that's how we ended up in Toronto. It's such a a lovely community. I mean, all the Torontonians or Toronto, I don't know how you say I that. I would say that. <laughs> I'd say Torontonians. Um, you know, Lila and um, just everybody I've met in um, through the podcast in that area have just been mm. delightful and lovely. And I, you know, I often, my girlfriend is Canadian. She um, grew up in New Brunswick and her parents are still there. And I nice. sometimes think, um, yeah, Toronto, that would be really interesting because just because of all the people I've met and it just feels so nurturing and supportive, that community, I, I, I think the community you've landed in is a, is a really precious yeah. one. I, I completely agree with you. I feel very lucky and 
so many. Yeah, you mentioned Lila. And funnily enough, Amy Servini, who I mentioned earlier, is Canadian. Okay. And her brother, Ernesto Servini, is the right. drummer on this album. Yeah, so that drummer. sense of, again, that sense of extended community from my time in New York. And in fact, I met Lila in New York the first time I met her. We weren't actually friends. We met so briefly. I was curating a a vocal jazz series at Cornelia Street Cafe. May may she rest in peace. Oh. And that's how I met Lila briefly. She came to sing, did a great show. But then coming here, we we fostered this very, very special friendship. And um, yeah, some of my favorite Canadians are on the album. And that's, that's no coincidence. Ernesto <laughs> and Chris Donnelly and Dan Fortin. I mean, yeah. they're all lovely, lovely people. Tara Davidson. Yeah, yeah. So I agree with you. Yeah. There, are, there are some very special people this side of the border. One more sample from the album Nowhere Girl. This is Keep It Simple. Can you keep it simple, keep it good? Can you go the distance as you should? Can you silence chatter that you hear Online, offline, everywhere Are your choices balanced, well thought out? Can the smallest voice rise or the shout? Do you find you're on the road to run To the sound of someone else's tune keep it simple keep it so this album as you mentioned there's only has two covers on it and the rest are originals how how are you with the songwriting process like is that um because you're also a singer songwriter like on your website there's like jazz and then singer <laughs> You know, if you go to like look at your videos or your music, it's like it's just, jazz and yeah. then singer songwriter. Um, yeah. Have you always identified as a singer songwriter as well? I have. I always did. I always identified first and foremost as a jazz musician, and then as I got the Afrikaans expression is chutful, which means chut is ass and full means full. So as I got chutful of the jazz landscape and feeling like I was hitting my head against a wall and trying to progress, but really not, you know, sort of developing at the pace that I wanted to, I turned more and more to songwriting because I found it incredibly freeing. And I found that getting to say what I wanted to say really was in stark contrast to trying to carve out a name for myself in jazz, where I felt like I was at the mercy of other people and, um, I wasn't everyone's cup of tea, and it was just so challenging and frustrating. So I started songwriting more, writing songs more and more. I started enjoying it more. But also, you know, Steve, the bulk of the music, again, it harkens back to the music my dad introduced me to. My mother introduced me to musical theater. Um, and again, you know, the bread and butter of the American songbook, it all comes from musicals. Musical theater. Yeah. yeah. Gershwin's. Rogers and Hearts, Cole Porter, those all came from musicals. So it's all about the song. It's always been about the song. And so perhaps I was always going to lean into that and start trying my hand at writing my own songs. It came about very naturally. And 
I've never felt overly confident about my ability as a songwriter. My first album, there were two originals. The second album, there were four. Then there was an EP, which was all originals, which was very much, I was galvanized by this Australian jazz singer-songwriter named Jan Slater. Oh, I love Jan. Absolute, yeah, exactly. See, anybody who knows Jan, when you mention, they go, oh, I love Jan. Yeah, Jan is, Jan is um, oh. prodigious, and Jan writes yeah. and writes and writes, and I was inspired by her, and I wrote this EP. I was like, I'm just going to write an EP of original songs. So it's been a slow process to feel self-assured as a songwriter because I've been cautious about it because I have often felt self-assured as a jazz singer and then kind of had the rug pulled out from under me so that I feel less confident. So I have mm. started, as I got an older, thank gosh, got a little bit more cautious, <laughs> erred on the side of caution, which is never a bad thing. No. Um, never a bad thing. So it's it's been over time that I have gotten much more confident to the point where I would deign to make an album where it's nine original tunes and two covers, one mm. of which has my lyrics. So right. you know, it's not pure singer, it's not pure songwriting for me, but it's kind of half there. Um, yeah. And to be able to say I really stand behind the writing on this album uh, without ego, but purely yeah. from a, well, let's analyze it and see if it's any good point of view is pretty great. Um, and also I'm older, so I, I do have a sense of my strengths and my weaknesses, of which there are many. Um, so I know by this point in time, I, I, and also have engaged people's reactions to music that I've written over over the past decade plus. I take all of that and I say, okay, I, I can do this. I'm not, I'm not terrible at this. And uh, I enjoy it because... I feel like I know how to do it. And I feel like when I hear a song by somebody else that I think is a great song, I can sit by myself and ask myself, why is it a great song? What is it about it that is a strength? What is it about it that speaks to you? And can I take that tool and apply it to my own songwriting? Uh, and similarly, when I hear a song that I think is a terrible song, I never, I never just cast something away and say, oh, that's shit. I will listen to it and say, why do I think that is really not hitting home? Right. You know, yeah. so that I could stand by it if somebody said, oh, don't you love so-and-so's music? And I'd say, no, I don't think it's great. Not really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're writing, like, does it, um, is it the lyric first, the melody? Do you hear a bass line or is it, is it none of those or all of those or... <laughs> Uh, you said you use their voice notes. I, that's something I do too to capture ideas. But yeah. does it normally yeah. start in one particular area and move from there? It changes. Sometimes I'll have the idea for a story. And so there's an idea for a lyric. And I might write that down and then put it to music afterwards. Very often it's a chord progression. So it's seldom just a bass line, unless it's like a, a, an ostinato pattern. So, for example, My Love, there is a little hook on the chorus in the bass uh, and the left hand is again. But 
I think the first thing that came about for that song was the intro, which is a combination of the two. And that's really harmony led, you know, yeah. how we how we divvy it up, how we split it up with that. But but that's sort of secondary. Um, so usually it's a chord progression and then a melody will come. And then through doodling with the melody, the lyrics will come. Right. And then it becomes a process of polishing it. So and those things are then all in play all at once um so a lyric may change a melody might change the entire melody of my love changed it used to be a a, a much higher register melody and that's how we recorded it in fact and when it came to mixing i was struggling to get the mix right on it because the melody was much higher and to get a sort of weightiness to my voice um, in the mix was difficult and Odette said to me, you know what? It kind of sounds like you are recording the cover of this song. That this song was written by somebody else because it has quite good sort of poppy um, South African-y crossover potential. Mm. But you sound like the white girl singer who's delivering <laughs> a cover of it, right? And he was right. And what it was is the melody needed to be in my chest voice so that I could kind of give it the gravitas that it needed. And we added guitar, Julio Sigauk, who is originally from Mozambique, um, but lives in South Africa. He added guitar parts for me afterwards to give it actually even more of a sense of South Africanism, um, hopefully without it becoming gimmicky, because you've got to be careful about that, right? right. Um, so the melody now is da 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 It's completely chest voice. We didn't change the chorus, which is still heady, but um, those sort of decisions, yeah, those come, those can come at yeah. any point after the process. Um, so yeah, that the, the 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 songwriting process for me is often if the mood strikes. I don't write every day. I'm very goal oriented. So if somebody said you have to write me a song by this point in time, and maybe even it needs to be about X, Y, and Z, I could get on it. But like, I'm not writing anything at the moment because this album, although it's finished and this music, so much of it was written, you know, over 10 years and it's been sitting for a while, until the album is released, I won't really be able to move on to the next thing. Yep. I have ideas, but I haven't gone and sure. written them. That makes sense. I'm the same way, very goal oriented. If I don't have something on the calendar, it's, it's it's a little more challenging to yeah. to put forth action. Um, what are you a big listener of music? Do you consume a lot of music? And what, if so, what are you listening to these days? I do consume a lot of music. I don't always consume stuff in its entirety, whether it's a song or whether it's an album. I mean, I don't know the last time I listened to an entire album. Um, I do listen to jazz, but I tend to top and tail it. Again, I'm interested in what so-and-so recorded or what, you know, the next album that so-and-so is putting out. Um, so I'll go and I'll, I'll sort of spot listen through and say, oh, that's lovely. And, or, oh, yeah. I don't like this and I'll stop. Right. Um, but in terms of from start to finish, I listen to a lot of film scores. I have oh. a lot of playlists in iTunes that I've made that are like either all Thomas Newman film scores, because I'm a, a little obsessed with the Newman, the Newman um, legacy and 
between Thomas and his cousin Randy, and I often joke, you know, when will they adopt me? Any day now. <laughs> um, I absolutely adore them both. As and I mean, I adore them both as film scores. I've got a lot of Randy Newman film scores on my playlist as well. You know, The Natural and yeah. um, stuff he wrote even for you know Toy Story and Awakenings. I mean, he's really extraordinary. Uh, and then of course I hold him in incredibly high esteem as a songwriter, singer songwriter. Yeah. Um, so I listen to a lot of film music and part of it is the ease. Part of it is the emotional manipulation of it. I want to be emotionally manipulated. Earlier you asked me if I watch award shows. Part of what I love watching about, part of what I love about watching award shows is I love watching the acceptance speeches and Mm. just crying. I mean, I don't know these people. (laughs) I'm not proud of them. I'm not their mother, but yet I get so excited and I love to lean into the fact that my eyes well up and I'm like, yes, go there, go there, get a tear, get a tear. You'll feel so much better afterwards, you know? So I, I like to allow myself to be emotionally manipulated. Good film does that for me too, you know, or good TV show. I'll go there. Um, absolutely. So I listen to a lot of film music for that reason. And I find it relaxing. There's a lushness to it that I adore. I do listen to a lot of classical music, although probably stuff that does err on the side of cinematic. So um, Danish String Quartet put out a beautiful album where they've interpreted a lot of traditional Scandinavian and Danish folk songs. And it's just beautiful. But it's String Quartet, you know, so you can you can go... It can be movie-esque at times, very narrative. I love that that album. I think it's called Last Leaf. That's an album I listen to from start to finish and will do again and again. Um, Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott have a beautiful duo album that came out, I think, maybe during the pandemic. Uh, But it's a combination of, you know, they'll play Grieg, but they'll also play a Caroline Shaw arrangement of... um, which folk tune is it? I forget. I forget. I don't know. And, and then there's a, an arrangement of Amazing Grace and they play Gracias a la Vida, that Violeta Parra song, which I love. So there's a whole bunch of stuff on it. So I, that's what I've been listening to of late. Um, and then when I do listen to jazz, I, I like to relax and listen. So I'm going to go back to Blossom Deary, mm-hmm. uh, Frank, Sinatra, Chet mm-hmm. Baker, kind of old school stuff. And anybody who knows me knows that I'm a bit of a stickler. If I'm going to listen to traditional jazz, it's going to be traditional jazz. It's not going to be traditional jazz created by a 20-something-year-old in 2023. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went there, Steve. I said it. You okay. Know? And all, all, yeah. all praise for people who do that. I can't do that. Am I slightly yeah. envious? Maybe, because there is a sense of... <laughs> This is what I sound like, and this is the kind of music I make that has taken me a decade to figure out. Sure. And, you know, it will yeah. probably still continue to change. So I am a little envious of people who spring forth from the womb, you know, sounding like a 1950s, 1960s vocalist. And I think that a lot of listeners, and again, I, I once put this on Twitter and somebody didn't like it, they were offended. And I was like, fair enough, it is mildly offensive maybe. But I feel like that retro sound is kind of fetishized a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. We like what we like. And retro is very trendy in everything from fashion to art to music. But 
you know, if I want to hear a singer from the 1950s, then I'm going to go and listen to a singer from the 1950s. I want to get the scratches, you know, in the recording. And um, if I want to listen to, I'll go one further, Steve. If I want to listen to Betty Carter, I'm going to listen to Betty Carter. I'm exactly. not going to listen to somebody who is channeling the spirit of <laughs> Betty or Nina or Carmen, you know, or Ella. Or Billy. So yeah. that's all I'll say on that when it comes okay. to listening to jazz. That's what I that's what I will will listen to. And there are a couple of jazz musicians whose music I will enjoy the same way I do orchestral music. And those are people like Avishai Cohen, the bassist. Um, I generally adore and Larsa Nielsen, also also a bassist, but I'm um, a really fabulous composer. Uh, so yeah, there are a couple of instrumentalists there who who make my grade. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So we have that you have the album coming out on June the 9th. Sorry, I was reading yes. a different date there. Um, and then what's your summer like? Do you have some uh, performances following up the album release? I'm so glad you asked, Steve. Uh, yeah, so I'm very excited. We're going to be playing the Toronto International Jazz Festival in June, on June 26th, which is a Monday. Uh, at 4.30 p.m. we'll be on the outdoor stage up in Yorkville. Um, so that will be the official Canadian or Ontario or Toronto album release concert, which will be really fun. And yes, we'll, we'll do a Joni Mitchell cover, you know. <laughs> If you can't beat him, right? <laughs> although, although now that I say that out loud, I'm thinking I don't know if I want to put my original music next to Joni's original music. <laughs> that might be foolish, um, but we'll we'll see what we can do. Uh, and then in on the first of August, I'm going to be celebrating the album in London, my my birth town, at Pizza Express Soho uh, in Dean Street with. I, unfortunately, again, I'm not at the stage in my career where I can travel with my Canadian band. Your bandmates, um, yeah. I wish I could. Yeah, I I have to pick up pick up bands uh, at this point in the game. So, but that said, it is a lovely opportunity to play with new people and play with people that you've really sort of thought are great over the years. And so, I have a really amazing band in London um, with the guitarist Rob Luft. And pianist Tom Corley, who plays with Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And yeah, Connor Chaplin, the bassist, plays with Marius Nasset, who's a saxophonist who I really love as well. And uh, the drummer is Chris Higginbottom, who plays with uh, Kyle yeah. Eastwood. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, awesome. not shabby. <laughs> so, I, and again, to go back to the tennis analogy, Steve, I like this. I'm yeah. tying up all these yeah, ends for once in my life. Uh, if you want to become a better tennis player, you play with people who are better, better. than you. So yeah. foolishly or not foolishly, that's what I'm doing, uh, mm. which is what I did right. on this album too. I was like, these people are all tremendous. Let me see if I can raise my game and uh, emerge with some new skills and knowledge. Yeah. Awesome. Is it your intention to do like more of a official tour, like a North American tour in the fall or something like that or have you yeah, thought about that i so i would love to do the canadian jazz festival circuit in in 2024 um okay. yeah which would mean that i'd get to if if festivals were happy to have me or have have us because that i could do with my canadian band if i was able to get funding uh then that means we get to go and play 
in Calgary and Medicine Hat and maybe Montreal. Um, Vancouver. Vancouver, exactly, yeah. Um, So... Halifax, yeah. So basically, get to all the all the provinces. So certainly within Canada, that's what I would love to do. And then also down the line, I would I would love to try and you know take this music to to Paris and the Netherlands, you know, other well France, the Netherlands, Belgium, other parts of Europe. Um, that would just that would definitely be a, a goal and a and a dream. Sure. Well, I hope you get to Portland. <laughs> Hope we get to the yes, West Coast. Exactly. Well, and I'd, well, okay, I, I excluded the U.S. from that just because, again, visas another oh, another right. full yeah, circle. Yeah. yeah, but but it, but but maybe in a in a couple of years, yeah, if I can line up enough dates, then it would kind of make applying yeah. for a, a P two visa. It would make it make sense. So yeah, well, I would love to. I'd love to come back to to Portland, Oregon, and meet you in person and say yeah. hi to Randy Porter and. Yeah. Well, I'll watch. I'll watch if you had if you get to Vancouver, at, you know, or if we're in, if we're in, we're supposed to go to uh, my girlfriend. Her her mother's turning eighty this Ooh. year, and we are going to be going to um, uh, New Brunswick to celebrate her birthday. So we'll see. You know, if there's performances around. Okay, I'll try and make it happen. Steve. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Where where should they go to find out more about you? I have a website, which is NikkiSchrera.com. My surname is such a mouthful and difficult to spell. Thanks but for if you pronouncing come anywhere it. close to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, actually, that's funny. On, on press reach out emails, I've started being like Schrera pronounced and try and write it phonetically. But if you right. come anywhere in the vicinity of spelling it correctly, even if it's a couple letters off, it'll pop up. So that's right. the only good thing about having a, yeah. a Zellweger for a surname is, um, yeah, NikkiSchroer.com is my website. And then same name for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's Nikki Schroer Music. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm not on TikTok. You won't find me there. Um, YouTube? Are you, do you have a YouTube, YouTube channel? I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. Yep, that's also YouTube forward slash Nikki Schroer. And okay. Spotify, all the streaming platforms. Please come follow me there. I've done it. I've made a huge number of, um, Spotify playlists, uh, which center mostly on other artists. So if that's something that's interesting to people, there's a yeah. South African jazz one, uh, which has many of my peers on it, as well as people like Becky and Seleku, who's, whose tune I cover on this album and folks who are unfortunately no longer with us. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a film score playlist and there's a folk, there's a singer songwriter playlist. There's a contemporary jazz vocalist playlist. So, you know, mm. if that's your... If that's your tipple, then you'll find that on Spotify. Awesome. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for sharing your time. It's been really lovely to chat with you. And I know I speak for everybody. We're real excited uh, to hear the full, the full release of Nowhere Girl when it comes out on June 9th. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. The pleasure really has been all mine. So thank you for letting me chew your ear off. And uh, yeah, such a fan of the podcast. And I look forward to hearing your other guests on upcoming episodes. Thanks so much, Nikki. Everyone, thanks so much for listening to the show. It was such a joy to speak with Nikki and get to know about her life and to hear some of this music and and bring it up and share it all. Please check out her website, NikkiSchreira.com. You can Google her. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. 
She has a nice YouTube channel and she creates some pretty cool Spotify playlists. So you should check those out as well. Once again, the album comes out on June 9th. So wherever you consume music, I would uh, highly encourage you to go and do that and spread the word. Also, head over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. Sign up for the newsletter. I am putting effort into getting the newsletter out, so some of you should see it in your inboxes soon. It's very short, easy to consume, and hopefully you'll find it fun and a, a nice little nugget for your week. Thanks again for listening. Please share this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people. It's nice to have a wide audience and trying to grow the audience as I begin the third year. I have about three episodes to produce and release for you. Be on the lookout for those. There should be another one coming up in just a little bit. All right, everybody, take care, and we'll see you real soon. 